Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. Thanks for being with us. Our guest today is Thelonious Circe, who has spent over 17 years in prison for a murder he says he didn't commit. But that's just the beginning. Listen to this. A Detroit hitman who is serving life in prison for multiple murders has said under oath several times that he is the one who, in fact, killed the man that the Thelonious is doing time for. Joining us now is Thelonious Circe on Open Mic. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. Welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm I'm well. Um, lots to talk about. You know, your name came up uh, on episode ten. We're now well over a hundred episodes, and I learned about you a long time ago um, during the Devante Sanford case. Uh, are you familiar with who that is? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, your name came up because uh, you guys share something in common. Both wrongfully convicted and both there's a hitman out there saying he did the crimes. Yes, sir. So we're going to get more into that. Um, but I want to start, you, you know, you've been out of prison since what? April of 2021. Yes, sir. I got out you, April 20th, 2021. Tell me what life's been like for you since uh, getting out by not even five months ago, four months ago. Well, life been good because I'm not I'm not I'm not inside of bondage and oppression. I'm out here in society where you know I could be a productive member of society with with my family and uh, you know being a father to my children, being a husband to my wife, and being a son to my mother, and um, a grandson to my grandmother. Just being free, you know, what I mean, away from uh, stress and uh, the environment where I was at, you know, that's. You no, know, it's uh, it's always a plus. You know, just being just being back out here, just good. Fantastic. So the the two children you mentioned, you had these children before you even went to prison. Yes, sir. How old are they now? Uh, they'll be twenty four and twenty three. My oldest daughter is twenty three. Lashira, my youngest daughter, Paige, is twenty uh, two. She'll be twenty three. And and their mom, your wife, you guys are still married. Uh, yes, sir. So she stuck with you these last 17 years while you were incarcerated. Yes, sir. That's amazing. And your mother's still alive. Yes, sir. That, so I, that truly is, is a blessing. And, and you know, the story, your story is, is, uh, complicated. Um, you are out right now on bond waiting for a second trial. Is that true? Yes, sir. Um, you're out because the Michigan Court of Appeals says that you should be given a new trial. Tell us, you know, when you got that decision back uh, four months ago, I mean, what what that means for you and how you felt when you read that? 
Well, I, I felt like, you know what I mean, I, I was finally bearing witness to, you know what I mean, the um the realness of God. I was being I was I was able to see God move, you know what I mean, in my direction in regards to uh um his power and authority, you know. So upon seeing that decision, I was, you know what I mean, I was happy to see that uh the truth was finally coming out. You know, I, I waited a long time for these just pieces of my case and it would be discussed. It was like I never had a local media uh, outlet to really look into my um, case in general. I never had nobody, you know, really try to investigate the things that I was saying outside of, you know, this lady from the Voice of Detroit named Diane Bukowski, um, people as such as you, you know, to sign a petition in, in regards to change.org. So getting that decision, you know what I mean? I was just, I felt that I was just one step closer to my freedom. Tell me what's your understanding of why the Court of Appeals feels that you need a second trial or you deserve a second trial? Well, I, I feel that the Court of Appeals thoroughly investigated my, my file, something that no court has ever gave me the opportunity. You know what I mean? I was, I, I was in a situation where um, my case just kept getting, as soon as my case, people versus Thelonious Cersei, it just kept getting rubber snapped. Every time you see my case would come up, it was just getting rubber stamped. Nobody never thoroughly investigated. They just went with the information that was submitted before the courts and the denials that came from the trial court before uh, my chief judge, which was uh, Timothy Kenny. It just went. I was denied before him. Then I was denied in the Court of Appeals. Then I was denied in the Supreme Court. Then I was denied in the federal court. Nobody never really thoroughly investigated none of the information that was uh, in black and white in my case. So and, and, I believe the, the Court of Appeals, they actually researched, they actually read the transcripts, they actually looked at the exhibits, and they actually saw what we what my attorney, Michael Desi, was stating in his in his in his brief and on the record before the courts was true and factual. And what was the what was the thing they hung their hat on saying that you needed a new trial? Well, for for starters, I have a chief judge. The chief judge of my case, his name is Timothy Michael Kenny. He represents the whole uh, Wayne County Third Circuit Court, and he was my trial. He was my trial judge, and during during jury deliberations, the jury sent a letter to my um, judge, and they were stating that they could not uh, find me guilty. And he he sent them back in the jury room and continue, made them continue to uh, deliberate, although they you know they sent that information. But the kicker about that is that. What Judge Kenny uh, did was that note he suppressed that that letter. It never it never became a part of the record. So they looked at that and they looked at the fact that um, during jury deliberation on uh I believe it's May 6, thousand and five, page eighty nine, lines five through thirteen, my jurors came out and they asked the courts. They wanted to know what type of caliber or weapon or bullet that killed the deceased. And the judge said, after speaking with, a, with both attorneys, they agreed to my sharing with you that the caliber bullets that was found in the deceased were too deformed to be able to identify. That statement within itself was a lie. It was a deliberate lie. You know, and during a critical uh, stage of my uh, trial, which ultimately forged, forced the, um, the door open for me to get found guilty. And... I say that based on facts. There's nothing, you know, a way of emotion. This is based on actual facts of the record. The people exhibit 23, which the prosecutors had in their possession. They had four 
evidence tags on there. All four evidence tags with the, the, the evidence that they abstracted from the deceased's body. And it was all identified as a 40. And the firearm examiner, he had identified these bullets on January 27, 2005, months prior to my May 2nd trial date of 05. So when they told the jury that they didn't know, they, they, they knew it. They Why is that relevant? Why is a 40 caliber bullet relevant? Why was it relevant? Because that was the actual gun that Vincent Smothers said that he killed the guy with. Uh. And the 40 was relevant because they wanted to know what kind of caliber of weapon that killed him. Those were the bullets that came out of the deceased. At the time of my arrest, I was arrested. Uh, the police recovered a 45 uh, handgun from my grandmother's house. And during trial, the prosecutor argued that that was the murder weapon. He basically showed them the 45 as if it was the murder weapon. And he mm -hmm. wanted them to believe that that was the murder weapon. So when he told them that he didn't know what type of caliber or weapon that killed the deceased during my um, jury deliberation, it was a deliberate lie. It, was, it wasn't done by mistake. It wasn't mistaken. In fact, it was based on a deliberate lie. So before we, I mean, get into Vincent Smothers and, and, and um, some of the crazy details that happened, I, I want to back up a little bit. Uh, for people who don't know about your case, you said there wasn't a ton of media coverage. Um, a man by the name of Jamal Seegers was murdered uh, during a botched robbery, they say. And tell me, I I'm curious how you found out that this person was murdered. Well, on this, on this particular night, I had a barbecue at my, at my uh, mother's house on Balfour Street on the northeast side of Detroit. And... Uh, on 11 o'clock news, we watched it on the news, or breaking news was now. I was on, I was on Balfour. And uh, that's how I learned, I learned of uh, the guy. I didn't even really know his name because I didn't hear his name. Only thing I saw was the, the guys who they said that was shot during you know, the shooting in front of the Detroit City Airport. And that's how I learned about. Did you ever heard of Jamal Seegers or met him before? Uh, I didn't even know him. And so you were at a, bar, a family barbecue with how many people? I probably had probably about 17, 18 people. You know what I mean? These are all your alibi witnesses. Yeah, and then it was neighbors, you know, to stay next door to me, people across the street. You know, it was a whole lot of people that, you know I mean, was in the vicinity of this barbecue to see me there with my daughters. I had both of my daughters with me the whole, you know I mean, the whole entire time that I was there. And so how did you become a suspect? I became a suspect by way of an informant. It was an informant by the name of DeAnthony uh, Witcher. And Do you know who this person is? Yeah, I knew DeAnthony Witcher. I knew DeAnthony Witcher from the streets. Okay. Previous to my arrest, I was in the streets. I ran the streets. You know, I don't lose from my past in the streets. I was in the streets. And I knew this guy. And what happened with this particular guy is it was an incident going on in regards to me and this guy, DeAnthony Witcher. And what he did was he went upon being arrested by this uh, this crooked homicide detective named Dale Collins. This guy, Dale Collins, was involved in a dragnet scandal. Um, him and multiple other uh, homicide detectives. Uh, in 1998, a guy, a hom homicide detective named Reginald Harville and Isaiah Smith, and they was what they was doing at this time was they was forcing uncorroborated uh, witnesses to testify. And they was locking them up. They was forcing them uh, to testify 
or forcing them to cooperate with an investigation in regards to any kind of homicides. So, so like fake, fake snitches. Right, right, right. Fake jailhouse snitches, even though they weren't in the jailhouse. But Right, right, right. So it was uh, when this guy got killed, this, this particular homicide guy went to go pick up DeAnthony Witcher. Upon picking up DeAnthony Witcher, DeAnthony Witcher gave an investigative subpoena support. And they usually only utilize these investigative subpoena supports during grand jury indictments. But in my particular case, they uh, the prosecutor sought to use this. And this wasn't by mere coincidence. They, they utilized this to make sure that this guy testified to the information that he was disclosing during his deposition hearing. And it's basically like as if they compelled him to testify to the information that he disclosed. But what he disclosed is that we had an ongoing feud. And up, um, previous to the ongoing feud is that he said that I said I would catch him at a club and I would I was going to uh, do something to him. So that the prosecutor utilized the information that he disclosed in regards to the uh, investigative subpoena stating that we had an ongoing feud and this would led to the guy getting killed at the Detroit City Airport saying that they had the same kind of car. The other thing which I had a 1998 blue Corvette. The guy that got killed at the Detroit City Airport, he had a 2004 silver Corvette. The cars weren't identical or nothing, but the prosecutor still was allowed, was was gave, was given leeway to utilize his theory up under 404B, which deals with previous bad acts. And they, they utilized his 404B to establish um, a motive, intent to show that a person has the propensity to commit violence. And what they or or to uh, establish a person's uh, character is like character evidence or dealing with reputation. So what they did was they said based on the previous act between me and Richard, this would led up to this guy getting killed. And it was, you know, it was just a theory and the theory was an unfounded truth. But they utilized this theory and it actually they carried it all the way through the trial. They used the Anthony in my case as a star witness. He got caught at the time of the incident that he said that he's the Anthony Richard uh, testimony verbatim was that I shot him in 2003 in a case in which he never testified to this information. He never pressed charges to this information in his own shooting. But wait, wait, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That you personally shot Witcher? Yeah. But he was, never went to the police. He never, he never got. Went to, he never went to the police. Never did he get medical charges. treatment? Huh? Did he get medical treatment? Yeah, he got medical treatment. But you weren't the one who shot him. No, somebody never, shot him, but he did never, get shot. It was never, it was never proved. It was never proven. No, nothing in regards to me doing nothing to this guy. But they used this guy as a star witness in this case to establish that this is why this guy got killed at the black party. So they you they used this uh, uncharged case, brought him in, allowed him to take up his shirt, said I shot him in the chest. And say that we had an ongoing feud. But then in order for him to testify, they gave him a deal for three pounds of marijuana, which he got caught in his house during this incident in exchange for his testimony. And this this deal was covered up on the use of immunity. And so hold on, hold on. Let me just for our listeners and viewers, he about a week or two before he before I don't know if it's before he testified against you or before he was brought, he was popped for something else. Yeah, it was uh, no, no, no. This way on November 16, 2003, he was shot. He was shot on November th um, 16, 
upon being shot November 16, 2003. He never gave me a police report, never pressed charges, none of this. September 9, 2004, he comes forward. This this four days after the shooting at the Detroit City Airport under the guise of Dale Collins, a homicide investigator. He tells investigators that uh, the guy was killed based on me looking for him and I killed Jamal Seekers in the case of mistaken identity. On November 18, 2004, the Anthony Witcher was caught on 8 Mile in Hoover driving in a blue Corvette, a 1998 blue Corvette, and got caught with a, nine, a loaded 9mm a week before I got arrested. I got arrested on November 30th, 2004. But a week prior to my arrest, he was arrested on 8 Mile with this 9mm. In exchange for his uh, testimony against me, they gave him a deal for the four pounds of marijuana that he got caught with during the incidents when he got shot. And they gave him a deal for the gun. They never put the deal on a, <clears throat> on a gun on the record. They put the four pounds of marijuana, they put that on the record, stating that he got a, a deal for use of immunity in exchange for his testimony in regards to the ongoing feud with Mr. Thelonious Cersei. They placed that on the record. Ten years after my conviction, I FOIA my uh, homicide file. Upon FOIA my homicide file, I find that DeAnthony Witcher was arrested a week prior to me getting arrested with a nine millimeter. I submit a Brady a Brady violation before Judge Kenny. Judge Kenny said this this uh this this report wasn't new. It doesn't show uh, a conviction on this case. So in 2018, when I go back for my evidentiary hearing, they say that he was never charged with this gun based on the fact that the car wasn't registered in his name. But he's the sole occupant or driver of this car, yet still he wasn't tried with this pistol. They dismissed the case. The gun case went away mysteriously, quote, unquote. The prosecutor's office said they never charged him with it. Didn't understand Wow. So obviously he got, uh, I mean, your theory is that, that the prosecutors um, dropped the gun charges, didn't put it on the record, so they wouldn't have to notify you uh, pursuant to Brady, because had you known about that, you could have cross-examined him on that in front of the jury, and the jury might have gotten a different impression whether or not they could have believed him or not, right. correct? Right, correct. This, this so, right. so the second you learned about it, your head must have wanted to explode. And um, you went to Kenny. Kenny said, nothing here. Uh, but your lawyers kept beating the drum, went in front of the Court of Appeals, went in front of the Supreme Court. And I have to imagine, I haven't read your Supreme Court ruling or the Court of Appeals ruling, but that Brady violation had to have something to do with the fact that they said you're entitled to a second trial. Is that true? Well, I would, I would, I would say it, it was couple. It was Mr. Morris. It's, it's so many things that they got. You know what I mean? They got. I know my case file where this case. Let me just say this: one of the reasons I feel that they looked at it was one that the prosecutor was caught on the record red-handed. Not only was he caught, and this is the trial prosecutor Patrick Muscat, who was the deputy chief prosecutor up under uh, District Attorney Prosecutor Ken Worth. Patrick Muscat was caught lying on the record. It's on the record. Not, not was he just caught lying on the record. I have three 
three officers that's involved in multiple uh, criminal convictions where these guys been found, these off, these particular officers have been found untrustworthy in regards to uh, lying, falsifying ballistic evidence, um, tampering with evidence, and it's, 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 it's national, it's on the record. You have Dale Collins, who utilized a, um, an informant and that was placed inside a 1300 Bovian who was supposed to went to prison. His name, this informant name was Joe Twilley. Joe Twilley testified in over a hundred cases. Um, he jumped on cases, jumped on over a hundred cases on, on behalf of Dale Collins to obtain criminal convictions. Uh, it's a big, it's a big article on this called Ring of Snitches. And this 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 particular homicide detective's name has never been placed on a Brady Gigolo list as a one untrustworthy uh, homicide detective. Never, even even with guys who've been exonerated, such as Bernard Howard, Lucino Hamilton, uh, Raymond Ward, uh, Larry Smith. All these guys were involved in the ring of snitches. The same homicide guy was on my case. Kevin Reed, he was he was the firearm examiner who got the Detroit Crime Lab closed down in 2008 for his faulty uh, practices in regards to um, falsifying ballistic evidence and all this, saying that evidence matched and it didn't. He got national exposure where in the People versus Gerard Williams, and his attorney name was Marvin Barnett. And in this particular case, what happened in this particular case was uh, Reed testified that a nine millimeter matched the AK 47 round. They hired an independent firearm investigator and it was found that the two caliber bullets, they wasn't compatible. The next, uh, firearm investigator I had on my case was David punch. David punch falsified ballistic evidence in the people versus, uh, Desmond Ricks. In this case, Desmond Ricks was charged with killing a guy outside of a, a restaurant. And they said that, a. a 38 or 32 that was recovered from his mother's uh, bedroom uh, was the murder weapon. And, and, and in this particular case, Desmond Ricks took a cop, a cop's agreement to 30 years, 25 years into this 30 year cop. They retested the ballistics in the Desmond Ricks case and it was found that the firearm was not even a murder weapon. So I believe that these judges were already informed on the officers uh, the prosecutor, because in, in, in my case, you have uh, Muscat, who was the uh, presiding prosecutor over the people versus Kenneth Nixon. And in Kenneth Nixon case, Kenneth Nixon was charged with killing a um, six-year-old little girl and a um, seven-year-old little girl in a firebomb. And in this particular case, Prosecutor Muscat was caught via e email, him and uh, uh, former homicide Detroit detective uh, James Tolliver emailing back and forth saying that the case was falling apart. And what Muscat did in this case was he placed an informant in a cell with Kenneth Nixon to deliberately lie and say that Kenneth Nixon divorced information in regards to the case saying that he was the killer in this particular case. So I have all these moving pieces in my case coupled with the fact that you have a well-known Detroit hitman who confessed to this case years ago, according to his, his co-defendant, Marzell Black, who said he had confessed about this case. And at the time, they knew that he did the case back in 04. Right. But Marzell Black 
testified in my case. They, they always talk about Vincent Smothers. They never talk they talk about his co-defendant, Marzell Black, who testified in my case stating that Vincent Smothers told him that he did this murder. So you're so okay, there's a lot of moving parts. We haven't even got to most of them. But you know, you're out on you're out on bond, you're wearing a tether. As of right now, and she has the ability to change her mind. A prosecutor worthy is saying she wants to try you a second time for this murder, despite all of these things that you're telling me about, despite the fact that Vincent Smothers could testify under oath, come to trial and say he's the one who shot this person with the 40 show the lies from, from make sure no lies are told. I'm not sure you're going to be able to show the lies that were told during your first trial. Cause that's not relevant in this trial, yes, sir. but, but the alibis and uh, Vincent Smothers and Witcher may or may not be able to testify. Is he still alive? That guy. You said what? Witcher. Is he still alive? Uh, I will. I will believe so. I will hope so. <laughs> Well, good. So he, he, he's either going to come, either he's going to come back and testify or they're not going to call him. I mean, it sounds like, and, and what about all the alibi witnesses? Hopefully they're still around and hopefully they still remember. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I have, I have way more alibi witnesses than this. How um, many were called in the first trial? I had 17 people there at witnesses. the first trial. And how many but, did, did your lawyer my, call? My attorney only called seven. Okay. And I had one of the worst, worst, worst uh, appeal, I mean, not appeal, but trial uh, representations of a lawyer probably in the United States history. What I was his Robert, name? I had Robert Mitchell. And uh, in this case, now. That's a court appointed attorney. That was my, no, he was my paid attorney. I you paid know. him. We paid him $20,000. I have receipts and everything. We For terrible him. representation. Now, he's deceased, right? Yeah, he's deceased. He died. He passed away in uh, December 2017. Okay. And your new lawyer who's going to try your second case, if you have a second case, is who? Uh, I'm represented by uh, Mike Lardesi. And he's he's willing to take your case to trial? Yes, sir. Yes, and sir. he seems to be doing a good job for you now. Yes, sir. Yeah, he's doing he's I don't know him, but, he, but I'm impressed with... Uh, I'm impressed that you're sitting at home um, yes, after a life uh, sentence um, for a murder conviction. You're sitting at home helping prepare for trial from home, helping take care of your kids with your wife, with your mom, with the support of your and love of your family. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Now, we're, we're I mean, is he having discussions with prosecutor worthy about not retrying you? Where Where's those discussions? Well, see. When, 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 a, when a person has arrogance, they become puffed up with pride. She's not, she don't, she's not willing to admit that this stuff is taking place where her prosecutors within, a, you know what I mean, within the Wayne County prosecutor's office. Um, she stands by believe, But if they believed Vincent Smothers in the Devante Sanford case, how come they wouldn't believe Devon, uh, they wouldn't believe Vincent Smothers in the, 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 Polonius Circe's case. Why wouldn't they believe him now? Well, I can't. I can't answer. I'm not a prosecutor. Only, only thing I only thing I can say is it's, it's, it's a personal vendetta. Okay, you were telling me why you think that the prosecutor's office is not believing the shooter Vincent Smothers, who who signed affidavits, testified that you were not the shooter; he was the shooter. You've right. maintained your innocence since day one. They want um, why and why do you think that they're that they're gonna that they're saying right now that they want a second trial? 
They don't, don't want to lose. They don't want to. It's, it's, it's embarrassment going on. You got to think. Out of all the wrongful convictions in the United States, Wayne County is second. So they don't want a case with so 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 much high profile as, as such as mine to 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 come back in, in front of them and they dismiss it. So before they just dismiss it and walk away from a case like mine, they feel that they gonna try it again, and I'm I'm okay with that. But Wait, do you have a trial date? No, I don't okay. have I don't have a trial date. Um, I've been I've been on this GPS device since the time I I left I left. I, you know what I mean? Uh, Are you allowed to leave the house? Nope. You're, you're, you're home confinement. I'm on home confinement. I'm on home confinement. But your kids are with you. Your wife's with you. Your mom comes by and visits. Well, yeah, my family come by and visit. You know what I mean? I'm sustaining myself based on I, I wrote I wrote a, uh, a book while I was incarcerated. Well, I wrote 18 books while I was incarcerated. Wow. But, you know, I, uh, Where can I people find these books? Well, I got a, I got a book called Be First, Part 1 and 2. It's a hood novel. It's um, it's on uh, Amazon.com, Arthur Thelonious Searcy. But I did this while I was in prison. And um, I refuse to allow them to define who I am as an individual. You know what I mean? I, I'm not going to allow them to depict me as a murderer. I'm not going to allow them to depict me as somebody, you know what I mean, that did such a vile thing. So I feel that no matter what they do, they can plan, but God is the best of planners. I'm going to be all right. I wouldn't be empowered to be able to see and uh, find out so much information if I wasn't backed by God. So I believe that whatever going to happen, it, it's not going to affect me. So back to your jury trial. Um, and, and I know you're not happy with your attorney who, who tried that first case. Um, what were the main reasons that you think you were convicted? I mean, there were seven there were seven people testified that you were at the party. What do you think were the most important factors that the prosecutors presented that that secured your conviction that day? One of the main things why I was convicted, one, you had the prosecutor that lied. The fact that he lied about, you know, the bullet, it, the bullet, the bullet was so important. Obviously, the jury wouldn't have asked it if it wasn't, if it didn't play a critical part. In and just to, to be, to be real clear. It was a 40 caliber bullet that they pulled out of the victim and they doctor. caught you or they said that you had a 45 caliber weapon that they found in your grandmother's house that they told the jury or they led the jury to believe was the Murder actual weapon. gun. Yeah. So that you think is a, is a, is a, is a metaphor. It's a smoking gun that had they been truthful and said it was a 40 that right then and there, you're, hopefully your attorney would have been smart enough to argue that those are two different calibers. Right, right. They're not caliber compatible. Even during my, you know, my evidentiary hearing, the way of uh, independent firearm examiner David Ballish, David Ballish stated that uh, confusing a, you know, a nine millimeter and a forty. Now that's another thing. That was another thing that happened. What ended up happening is, in regards to the ballistics um, that we talk about with this, with this, uh, with the decision that came from the Michigan uh, Court of Appeals and the Michigan Supreme Court, this it was a particular tag, evidence tag EO seven one nine sixteen oh four. It was labeled as a nine millimeter during the night of the shooting. They labeled that tag as a nine millimeter hmm. during trial. This particular tag was labeled as a forty. So. When I went back to court, I didn't go back to court 
on the ballistics, on the basis of the ballistics. That wasn't even, you know I mean, an argument that was raised. The chief judge took it upon himself trying to discredit what I was saying. He tried to discredit everything that we were saying. Like he didn't, he just felt that, you know, my, my, my appeal, you know what I mean? It was bullshit. He felt that everything that we were submitting before the court was bullshit. And he didn't want to, you know what I mean? He didn't want to accept the fact that this stuff took place inside of his courtroom as the chief judge. So what happened was he, he sent, he requested for that particular tag to be pulled upon this tag being pulled from the, um, Michigan State uh, Police Evidence uh, Department. That particular tag was labeled, even right now, and I can send you, I can forward you those exhibits. It's labeled still right now today, a nine millimeter and a 40 caliber. So upon seeing this discrepancy, what they had to do, they had to re-examine that, that particular uh, uh, caliber uh, casing. And it was found that this was the same bullet that they extracted from the deceased. So the bullet was identified on January 27, 2005, and they knew this. So there's no way you can get around it because David Punch, he had identified it already. He had placed it on a record that it was a 40 caliber uh, bullet. He placed that into the, um, into the report. So when Kevin Reed and all these people testifying during my trial, they saying they don't know what type of caliber or weapon, you know, uh, uh, people exhibit 23, they can't identify. It was a lie. And it was a deliberate lie. So I believe when we go, when we go back to trial, when we, we factor in, we got witnesses. I have uh, the uncle of DeAnthony Witcher signed a sworn affidavit through the Iverson investigation, signed an affidavit, a sworn affidavit. His name is Harvey Witcher, stating that his, uh, that the girls who testified against me in this case, that they were paid to test it, they were paid to testify against me. I have that affidavit. And this particular witness was supposed to be called on my behalf, and my attorney didn't call him on purpose. Mm. He didn't call him. Robert Mitchell didn't call him. He signed an affidavit and he said that the girls were paid to testify against me, you know? And so I believe uh, that's a mitigating factor. We have uh, a witness named Latasha Boatwright. She gave information in regards to uh, uh, the Detroit police uh, threatened her, telling her if she didn't testify that they would take her unborn child and that they offered her a snitch check in exchange for her testimony. So she did this. She did this article with a reporter by the name of Gus Burns. So information as such as this is damaging to the you know what I mean to the prosecutor's case. So we can go to trial. I'm ready for it. You know what I mean? I'm ready. If we went to trial tomorrow, I'll be ready for it. I'll be and ready the only for it. evidence against you? Yeah, it was an informant. They, they strongest, Kirk. they strongest, they strongest witness was an informant. You had uh, you no had, eyewitnesses. No eyewitnesses. You had you had four eyewitnesses against me in this case. You had Tell Dwayne, me who, you had this guy okay. Dwayne Die in his police statement. This is what he tells the Detroit police. It's in black and white. I'm gonna forward to you after this interview. Okay. He he tells the Detroit police. He said, I must tell you, I'm not sure about the shooter's face, but if he had on the same clothes that he had on that night, I can identify him. Mm. Now, how is it that he tells this to the police? He tells it to a, a police officer named Maddie, Maddie Hardy or Maddie Dixon. He states this in this police report. And then they show him a photo identification. He said, that's number five, that's him. Number five is not, that I, that's a picture that they have of me is a picture of me when I was 18 years old. The time of my arrest, I'm 24. I don't even look the same on that picture. 
but they wow. say he said that's me. So my uh, my my identification lined up with the pro whole process. It was it was tampered with. It was unduly suggestive, uh, suggestive in regards to you know what I mean how they uh, how they identified me. And when you have a guy who make that statement and then turn around and identify me through a photo identification, one that's lit, that leads one to believe that the identification is tampered with. You have another witness named Tiffany King. Tiffany King was never showed a photo identification out of all the witnesses that testify against me. She's the only one that didn't was never showed a, a picture of me. Why? I was in police custody. I should have uh, been placed in a lineup. They should have showed her a picture of me. They showed Latasha Boatwright a picture of me. They showed Kimberly Jeffrey a, a picture of me. And they showed Dwayne Dye a picture of me. Why did they show all these witnesses pictures of me? And they didn't show one to Tiffany King. So you had, to, you know, that's a head scratch. You have uh, a time. What did she Bo testify to without, what did she testify to? She testified that she was parked on the side of the, the, the deceased's uh, Corvette. She was in traffic on the side of the deceased's Corvette. And she identified me as being the shooter. But she was never showed a photo identification. Why? Why? Why wouldn't she show the photo identification? So when you talk about Latasha Boatwright, Latasha Boatwright, they all describe me as being 190 to 200 pounds. You have Kimberly Jeffries saying I'm 190 to 2,000, I mean 200 pounds. Anybody who know me from the streets of Detroit, especially Northeast side, the first thing you would have said about me when you identify me is you're going to say I got crooked teeth. You're going to say that my teeth are crooked. And you're going to say that I got 100 tattoos all over my body. All over my arms, you will be that you will first. That's gonna be your first identification of me. But none of those witnesses, I didn't. None of those witnesses testified to that. They stated, you know what I mean, uh, that uh, the shooter was caramel skin. I'm dark skin. My 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 skin. My, I can't I can't turn from dark to light skin overnight. I've been dark skin my whole life. So I I you know so you feel good about my, my weight. When I got arrested, I was 130 pounds. That's why my name was called Skinny Man in the Streets. Hmm. So interesting. So, so that's why you're not concerned about the four, four people who ID'd you, uh, one eyewitness, and then, I mean, there was only one eyewitness, and the other three were what? Or were they all there at the scene? Well, you had two of the witnesses. They they were cousins. Two of the witnesses. Both of these witnesses. Uh, identification testimony from the last trial, it could be it could be challenged based mm -hmm. on the fact that the affidavit that I have from Harvey Witcher stating that his nephew DeAnthony Witcher paid these girls to testify against me, uh, that could be easily dispelled. You know what I mean? So I feel that the jury's going to be able to discern the truth in all their testimony. You know, I can't spill my whole defense in regards to how I'm going to go about attacking it. But no, I, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that. Yeah. Um, I don't want you to, to give up those. I want, I want you to save those for trial. Um, but, and you think that the jury will believe Vincent Smothers, uh, and that Black. don't forget, don't forget his co-defendant. The other, hit, the other hit man that was involved, Marzell Black and Vincent Smothers were charged with killing a Detroit police wife named Rose Cobb. The uh, I mean, the Detroit police sergeant who solicited Vincent Smothers in, in, in this particular murder, his name was David Cobb. And Marzell Black is the co-defendant on that case. And he testified that Vincent Smothers was, was responsible for committing this murder. So 
don't uh i have no words yeah yeah lots of questions out there whether they're going to retry you and you know i have a note here that you were you were uh you recently graduated from blackstone career institute tell us what that is and what you hope to do with that um assuming you get that tether off and you can go out and do some good things in this world well my thing is you know i mean to be you know i mean uh, um I want to eventually become a lawyer, but I was, you know, I mean, I, I, I became a paralegal based on, you know, what I mean, my my situation, my circumstances, because I was failed at every uh, angle in regards to legal representation. So I wanted to have my own knowledge, my own understanding of law, the language of the law, because through my ignorance, I suffered for my ignorance because I didn't understand what was being said during my, you know, my trial. I couldn't help myself. Mm-hmm. I believe, you know, my I believed and my family believed because we paid an attorney that this attorney would, you know, me upheld his 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 sworn legal ethical duty as an attorney to represent me, mm-hmm. um, to the fullest of his uh, uh, ability, and you know, I mean, I, I I was let down. So my whole idea of becoming a paralegal is to help those who are, you know, I mean, less fortunate who can't uh, afford a, a twenty to forty thousand dollar attorney. You know, I feel that if I can help anybody if i if i had to do a hundred pro bono cases you know what i mean my first three four years and coming into this i'm willing to do that because i know how i feel to not have help to not have nobody listen or nobody you know research and try to you know um just do effective work but what i learned in this paralegal uh course you know i learned about contracts i learned about the criminal law i learned about judicial proceedings i learned about shepherdizer i learned about you know uh just the language you know um, the King Court, you know, I learned, you know, um, stuff that's going to help me, you know what I mean, seeing higher in regards to my uh, position and as a paralegal, you know, my, my position as a defendant right now in court, I believe it has equipped me and empowered me to be able to um, hear and understand uh, what's going on now. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, Thelonious Cersei, I appreciate you being here and I wish you the best of luck. We're going to add some links to the end of uh, our show notes with the books and any documents that you mentioned in the show. If you'd like to send them to me, I'd like to show our listeners, show our viewers if they want to take a look at it. And I'd love you to keep in touch with us and let us know what happens. Uh, let us know if they decide to prosecute you again and, and come back on for another conversation because I've enjoyed learning about your case um, I think it was eye-opening, and I hope that uh, the public listens and watches and makes their own decisions. One more thing before I go. Yes, sir. I have a documentary coming out in regards to my whole entire conviction. Let's hear it. Where is that going to be? Uh, it's coming out soon. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that to, to see it on the big screen within the next six months. I've been working on this thing now for a little over nine months. Wow. Who's playing you? I'm playing me myself. I'm a you star. are. That uh that that board that I showed you breaking down my whole entire case, I'm working with different producers. I'm working with one producer from a uh, former producer from MTV, uh, Nadia Rush. I'm working with William Bradford. I'm working with uh BJ Levins from AGC Studios, and um Sarah Rutherford, and you know a slew of other producers in regards to exposing what's actually taking place in Wayne County. Um, each day that I'm out here, I'm making my time count. But you will be able to see the fullness of my, you know, I mean, my mental, you know, I mean, my legal expertise and, you know, how I fought this case from ground zero to right now to the position right now where I'm doing this interview with you. Well, I'm excited to see that. 
best of luck. Thank you for coming on open mic and we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Okay. Take care. Thelonious Cersei, you may remember hearing about him, episode 10. Go back and watch it. Talk about Vincent Smothers a lot. And um, the story's not over, right? We don't know. I, I uh, Stranger things have happened. We'll see if Kim Worthy's office decides to retry this man a second time or she decides to drop the charges. Um, I, don't, I haven't read all the decisions, so I'm not going to make a guess what's going to happen. But uh, something will happen in the near future, and we'll bring it back to you here on Open Mic. So thank you. Subscribe, comment, share this with your friends and family. We really appreciate you. Take care.